Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Women in Tech interview. We've got Tiffany Boba. Going to treat for you. Of course, you know, she's done a lot of things in her career. We're going to get down to the bottom of exactly her journey and where she was. And uh, she was recently uh, doing some keynotes over the Ingram Micro Show. And uh, that's where I got a little bit of information about her. But uh, Tiffany, first of all, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thrilled to be here. There you go. So now I know you're in transition and you're doing some crazy stuff right now and uh, moving from one place to the other. You've done a lot of things, but just give me your journey as you started um, way back. And then let's get up to today and then we'll talk about what you're planning to do new. Sure. You know, look, it was an accident that I found myself in this thing called the channel. Mm-hmm. Um, I got I got hired uh, like almost 30 years ago, um, 25 uh, at a small software company. And I was the only salesperson and I was like dialing for dollars all day. And, and it was in the legal industry. And there was this law technology product news magazine. Um, and this is kind of 1997 ish. Uh, and I was reading an article in there and there was an ad for the this thing called a value-added reseller. Like, hey, you know, if you want technology, come to us law firm and we can get you hardware and software. And I'm like, hold on a second. Like, why am I dialing for dollars all day? Why don't I just go ask them to sell our software, right? And that was sort of my first introduction to what a VAR was. Uh, and I took the sales from sort of, you know, 100,000 a month to almost a half half a million a month. Um, and my CEO at the time, right, was like, this is great. Let's go find more of these value-added resellers. And that was kind of my first little toe in the pool of understanding the value of distribution and the supply chain. And then very quickly over the course of the next kind of decade, I changed jobs every 18 months. And I went from a software-only company to a hardware and software bar to then a systems integrator who sold software, hardware, and and, uh, services. And then I landed at distribution at a company called Inacom until they went bankrupt. And then I landed at Sprint and helped them stand up their professional services division. And then I went to a little web hosting company and I was one of the first to stand up an indirect channel program in this thing called the World Wide Web Cloud. Uh, I think I stood up the first uh, VAR program, if you will, uh, uh, for cloud services and as a service services and really recruiting this new generation of partners. And to put that in context, this is 2000. So it's not like I you know, just started on this cloud journey a few years ago. It's been almost 20, 23 years. Uh, And then I left um, uh, the cloud world and I was hired at Gateway Computers when they were closing their stores to be their first channel chief um, to really stand up an indirect channel program um, and get the products into the hands of uh, VAR that were selling, um, you know, IBM at the time, uh, might have been selling HP at the time, but Dell was selling direct and so they had to figure out how to compete. I did that for a couple of years, built that business to almost 250 million. And then I said, I'm tired. Uh, so I spent a decade at Gartner as a research analyst and became a research fellow covering indirect channel strategies and advising uh, startups and some of the largest technology companies in the world and how to improve their channel programs and go to market models. Uh, and then I spent almost eight years at Salesforce uh, being an evangelist around uh, all things related to growth. So it's been a crazy ride, but one where uh, it has been uh, super rewarding and hopefully very impactful for my customers. If there was ever an example of someone who proves the value of the channel, I think you would be that picture in the dictionary. It's amazing. So 
from those beginnings and actually demonstrating very clearly that it's uh, you can do so much alone, but with the channel, you can do that plus so much more, right? Uh, and you've taken that along with your career. So you are, you know, definitely um, in a trendsetter in the channel for sure. Now, here you go. You've uh, you've not only done these things, but you've written some books. You've talked about all sorts of things. Tell us a bit about the books you've written, first of all, and and why and what does it do and what is it about? So my first book, Growth IQ, uh, was really a culmination of, you know, my 15 or so 20 years in the in the fight, right? Running sales, both direct and indirect marketing and customer service. Um, and then advising, uh, like I said, you know, some some of the largest technology in companies in the world to stand up their first channel programs. Someone like Adele, like I helped mm -hmm. them sort of operationalize with Greg, their channel chief at the time. Um, Microsoft going from on-prem programs to as-a-service programs. AWS standing up their first channel program. And so I had my hands in a lot of a lot of pies, if you will. Uh, and I got to see firsthand sort of what was working and not working when it related to growth strategies. So Growth IQ is really um, homage, if you will, to what I learned along the way. And it was 10 paths to growth. Two of those paths, one was partnerships, uh, which would be an obvious, right? And one was coopetition, working with companies that you may view as a competitor in a partnership manner to do one plus one equals three, especially in the channel. So it could be something like VCE as a great example, right? Or it out of technology, it could be uh, loyalty programs in the airline industry, right? I can get on one airline and another airline in the same loyalty program and it's seamless. And that's a great example of coopetition, right? They fight for, you know, my, my, uh, my seat, right. For me to do that. But there's certain reasons why as a customer, I need those airlines to work together, even if they view they compete. Um, so two chapters were really focused on it, right. Partnership and coopetition. Mm. Um, and then my second book experience mindset, uh, was really the 11th path, if you will, that I missed in growth IQ around the power of, um, employee or partner experience in delivering compelling customer experience to drive growth. Bravo and wow. Okay, so now, you know, you there's a lot of talk these days about partner relationships and customer experience and so on. What do you think is uh, is wrong with and uh, what do you think, uh, what people are getting right, what people are getting wrong when they look at their partnerships when it comes between vendors in particular distributors and their partners? Well, I think this has always been the question, kind of who owns the customer in air quotes? Is it the vendor? Is it distribution? Is it the value-added reseller? And I'm just going to use that as an all up, right? The managed service yeah. provider, VAR, SI, cloud provider, like, you know, just the channel in general, whatever that, that sort of makeup is. Within that supply chain, the end user customer, you know, if they're a small business, that IT VAR reseller SI is their outsourced IT department. And so if something goes wrong with the technology, who do they who do they blame? Do they go to the partner? Does the partner then say it's, it's our fault or it's distribution's fault or it's ultimately the vendor's fault? You know, the customer sees kind of it's the partner. And so understanding as a vendor and distributor, um, less so on the distribution side, but especially most uh, focused on the vendor side, is understanding that supply chain, the relationship between the two. It, because the only person, and I've said this literally for 20 years, that owns the customer is the customer. Like 
the partner doesn't own them, the vendor doesn't own them, like the the customer owns themselves, right? Who they choose to do business with is their own decision. But when they have needs or when they have an issue, um, they want to feel that that partner they've decided to do business with has their back, which then means vendors have to pay attention to the experience that partner has with them, ultimately because that partner is representing them in the eyes of the customer. So if the partner for some reason feels like the vendor's not going to back them up or they're not giving them the appropriate training or what they need to be successful, that partner themselves will say that experience with the vendor's not great. I'm going to go to another vendor. And it may have very little to do with the actual products and services. It may have to do with even though their product is really great, I can't get anyone on the phone when there's a problem. Or on Saturday when I'm transitioning, you know, the routers and switches and shutting down the internet connectivity for the business and something goes wrong, I need the vendor to be available so that we can get the customer back up and running before Monday morning when everyone shows up to work. That kind, especially for a managed service provider, that kind of service is part of the experience. And so I think that threaded the supply chain of the experience all the way through from the OEM to the end user customer, uh, you have to keep line of sight on that. What's some great, that's some great uh, advice and uh, insights because uh, a lot of people, they, they lose track of these things because they're in their own little silos and tunnels and it's me, me, me type thing. And uh, so that's some amazing stuff. Looking uh, zooming out a little bit, looking from a woman in, in the tech industry in particular, um, what do you see? Uh, I mean, we hear the data uh, that there's not enough women in uh, C-suite spots. There's um, there's not enough. Uh, the industry is not attracting enough women, uh, but it's starting to change a little bit. When it was uh, the pandemic, it uh, it's sort of like women left the industry a little bit more than than men did. What's your take about that? And and what do you think is missing? Why why is this a problem still today in 2023? Uh, I don't know why it's still a problem, but I, I'd say you know. I, when I tell people that I've been in tech literally for 30 years, they sort of look at me, right? And I go, I most definitely was one of the only women selling technology when I started selling technology, number one. Number two, as I started moving up in organizations, I for sure was one of the only mm -hmm. women sitting at the table. When you talk about channel chiefs, when I first started, Allison Watson was running worldwide channels for Microsoft. There was a handful, Julie Parrish was doing it for Symantec. Um, uh, there was there was maybe three to five female channel chiefs. It was kind of Rico, Microsoft, Symantec. Uh, I don't know who else I would even call into that. Um, uh, that were that were women. So, you know, it was hard for me to go. I see what I want to be. But what was amazing was each one of those women, and I remember their names like it was yesterday, and I remember the conversations when I was very early in my career in sort of 2001, two, three, four, right? And those sort of formative, they would give me time and give me a perspective on, you know, how to navigate all this. Now, I'm going to put a little asterisk next to it. I may be naive, but I never felt I got a job or didn't get a job or got an opportunity or didn't get an opportunity because I was a woman. Again, I may be naive to this and I might have just put blinders on and been like, really, that's their problem, not my problem. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but I would say that channel marketing is very heavy female. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it depends where you look in the industry, technically just in STEM in general, there's a shortage of women. But when you look at marketing, 
there's definitely a lot more women in sales. It's gotten way more balanced than when I was there, no question. And in leadership, it's gotten more balanced. In the C-suite of the Fortune 500, we've gone backwards a little bit, um, collectively cross industry, not just from a technology standpoint. But I remember um, uh, when uh, Carly Fiorina became the CEO of HP, and I was like, wow, you know, and then it was Ginny Rometty, and then, you know, there, there aren't many still uh, women that are are sort of leading these large technology companies. And I think that's a miss and not because of women. I just mean diversity because who are the customers? Who are the clients? It isn't just about women and men. It's about people of color. It's about, you know, creating technology for people with disabilities. Well, is there anyone on the executive staff that actually understands that? And yet people are designing for it. So I think there's so much more opportunity than just men or women. Uh, I think that it is um, uh, fluid all the way around, right? There's intersectionality between all kinds of things that we need to take into consideration. And I think that representation is important specifically for technology because tech is so ingrained in everything we do personally and professionally at this point, globally. I mean, no question. There's more smartphones than toothbrushes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, maybe we don't hope that, but yeah. Yeah, I, I it's guess the that. truth. But it's the truth. <laughs> the dentists are going to be all happy. You know, <laughs> the, the reality is, of course, I mean, diversity reflects the world, right? And uh, tech companies are now global, right? And if you don't understand what people in different countries and different walks of life are thinking or doing, then how do you really match them, right? And the big challenge these days is because AI is sort of going to ruin the party for everybody, right? Who who the hell is really, you know, developing the AI and teaching the AI, right? Because um, if, if the wrong folks teach AI a certain way, then AI can be very, very, um, how can I say, um, they can pick and choose certain things, right? Uh, for example, you know, I think when they, when, when they were, you know, testing cars at one point, uh, the crash test test dummies were just right. uh, designed like a male. So yep. then every time a woman gets in a car and had an accident, they got, you know, hurt really bad until they figured out, no, there's lots of other different kinds of bodies that go into a car. So right. eventually I think that's sort of where the trend the industry has to go. When you were growing through or going through this whole uh, channel experience, were there things that you saw that um, that you'd like to highlight that maybe that would help other women, advice you would give other women and how they could navigate the um, this industry? Well, you know, I remember it was, I think it was 2001 or 2002. I was at, you know, the very first women of the channel luncheon yeah. at VAR Business Magazine's exchange event. And there was like eight people in the audience and four of them were men that were working for sort of Bar Business Magazine, right? And it was a panel of us, literally. And yeah. now it's come, there's, you know, carved out events, Ingram Micro does stuff, right? That, that you guys will do things and um, other channel industries will do things where they're really reflective of it's important. Um, and so, you know, over that 20 years, I've watched that event go from eight people in the room right to 1500 in a room. Um, and so the support that's gone around that, the intentionality of channel chiefs and of leaders of technology companies to make sure they're making investments in some of the areas that have um, to improve diversity, but also to, you know, sort of raise and lift the voice of, of those that may not still be around. But there's something I wanted to to, to say back to that comment about AI, you know, data bias has been there forever. We're just now talking about it. I mean, mo if we say that most 
Unfortunately, technology is designed and developed by men and mm-hmm. big data has been around for much longer than we've been talking about at the public level of GPT and AI. That data has been not great from the beginning, right? Because it's been developed with a bias, so it spits out a bias. Um, and so now that GPT and AI are, are more prevalent, we're having different kinds of conversations Um But I still think this goes back to that comment, right? If it's only one group or one type of whatever, that would be like saying only hardware resellers are being asked to answer questions in a focus group for a company that sells both hardware, software, and services, you're going to get a bias. If you only put software partners in the room, you're going to get a different bias. If you only put service partners in the room, you're going to get a different bias. If you only put cloud providers in the room, you're going to get a different bias. So, you know, partner advisory boards tend to be a cross section or you'll have an advisory board for each and then you bring the findings together and then you can sort of pull it together. But that kind of understanding of you would never do it for hardware only, software only, services only. I mean, I would hope not. (laughs) Even if you're a software only provider or hardware only vendor OEM, never in the supply chain is it only one thing. I mean, right. So if you don't understand the dependency of each of the others, even if you don't have anything in the portfolio that satisfies that, like you don't sell anything in networking, but there's no way to deliver mobility without networking and your product is a mobility product, you need to understand the implications. So, you know, having um, that very narrow focus in anything that you do when it comes to growth, strategy, channel development, right, uh, direct versus indirect conflict, developing programs, any of those things, you want to make sure that you're widening um, your data points so that you can see the signals. You may say they're not relevant, but at least hear them and go, oh, well, wait, hold on. Well, while not relevant, this is interesting. We should consider this. Uh, and I think that's where you have really robust conversations and you have the opportunity to have a beginner's mind and not a fixed mindset on you know the answer because you've been doing this a long time versus looking and asking questions from others um, that may bring in new points of view. Yeah, I mean, the old saying, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot of channel chiefs or channel people, what they do is they they'll always go to their top 10% of their partners and ask, what do you think? Do you think we're doing the right job here? And of course the game is already, you know, skewed to their benefit. Right. So yeah, keep, keep it going the way it is. Right. But that means the other 80, 90% are not at the table. Right. And um, if you serve only, you know, that group, then it's fantastic. Right. But you need to have it's a, just hard a to scale the, It's hard to scale the long tail. Right. Yeah. So you focus on the 20 that are driving 80%, 20%, that are driving 80% of your revenue, you leave out the 80% that are driving the 20% of revenue because it's easier to scale that. But sometimes the greatest learnings are in the long tail. It's how do you do that using things like AI and automation to capture that information in a low touch way because the other part of the business is very high touch. So you don't want to ignore that they're not important because if your competitor figures out how to treat that group of long tail Mm -hmm. better with a better experience you risk losing them and then they may grow with them because someone actually paid attention yeah we see it all we see it every day um but another question i wanted to get from you is uh you know you've got these young kids coming up right um you know they're they're they are who they are and uh they're coming up with a whole different set of uh you know rules and regulations i would say um about lots of things privacy including and so on um, but they're 
what should they do as a career? They're, 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 they're challenges, right? They're thinking, what do I do, right? Do I go to school? Do I go to university? Is there value anymore? You have people saying, don't go because it's not worth it anymore. There's lots of people with opinions. What would you say to those um, young um, kids about uh, why tech should be an industry where they should, should consider, particularly women, girls? Yeah, look, if, if you have any interest at all, I, I just say, go try and do it somewhere. So if you're young and you want to be a marketer, market for your church or your softball team or your youth league or your kids youth league or their softball team or your whatever you want to do. Like if you want to market, go try. If you want to sell, start somewhere. If you want to get into technology, start to learn. Now there's so many ways in which you can learn self-learning online um, to get certifications, whether it be Google, whether it be Salesforce, whether it be Microsoft, whether it be anybody, right? There are all kinds of online learning um, to bring those up that maybe don't have college degrees um, to earn those skills. I think more and more companies are going to start hiring for skills and not necessarily, you know, education formally and or work experience, especially around these new things like GPT and AI. Nobody's got five years experience. It's like when the web came out, you're not going to find someone with 10 years of UX design experience for, <laughs> you know, the internet in 2000, that, but yet everyone was looking for it. So you want to hire for curiosity and skill development, then you have to continue to invest in that sort of career path and for those people. Um, but if you're interested in it at all, I just say, go start doing it. Learn on your own, low code, no code, um, you know, volunteer uh, for something and work with a, a local uh, SI or value-added reseller um, or get into marketing, whatever it might be. Uh, the, my best piece of advice is if you want to do something, go try, find a way you can do it, even if it's for free initially, while you have a you know a paying job, and then get to a place where you've got your skills and, and you can get to go get paid for it. Just jump in, I guess. So my last or last question is uh, so I mean sometimes you know we go through our careers and there were pivotal moments. You know maybe it's a mentor or uh, you'd like to go back and I wouldn't do that if I was uh, if I had to do it over again. Do you have any do over type moments that you want to share or? Yeah, and, and sort of the last minute that we've got, I'd say, this is what I'd say. I'd say um, I was a high performing seller and I got promoted to management and then, you know, management and then leadership, et cetera. And with each of those, I was not necessarily trained on what it meant to be a sales leader or a sales manager or to be a marketing leader or a customer service leader. I was an operational, uh, you know, I was successful operator, if you will. And the time between when I started getting promoted to when I got actually coached and mentored and trained on how to be a leader was maybe a six-year gap. And during that time, I probably was a terrible leader. So if I could have a do-over, um, I would say, you know, I would hope that now I would be a better manager, leader, mentor, coach, champion for the people who work for me versus sort of driving for that productivity and just creating burnout amongst my teams and myself, by the way, um, that I led the way I was led um, and where I was successful. That's sort of what how I led and how I thought success looked. Um, so I'd say if I had to do over now, I'd, I'd want to be a better leader than I was last time. Oh, that's a good one. Um, the last, last question is, what's the future? What, what are you on to now? I don't know. You know, my my book is a couple months old. I'm, I'm yeah. just uh, you know, on the backside of after a seven and a half amazing years uh, at Salesforce. So I'm right in this um, figure out what's next for me space. And I'm, I'm excited to see what's around the corner. Well, we'll keep watching, uh, Tiffany. So uh, thank you very much. And if everyone want, want to learn more about you or what's your website address? I think you have uh, your own, right? Yeah. 
Yep, it's tiffanybova.com and it's T-I-F-F-A-N-I uh, bova.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn and social. So follow me, drop me a note. And, uh, you know, Jillian, I appreciate you reaching out and giving me an opportunity to speak to an audience that uh, I, I have a huge amount of love for the channel. Well, it's our pleasure and we'll be following you. So keep us posted as uh, new things happen in your world. All, All right. right. Thank you so much. Have a great day, Cheers. everybody. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.